Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. We're now in our fourth season, and we remain just as excited as ever to continue to help you explore and understand that unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. Here we look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here, issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues and gut health, cancers, lung and heart issues and more. So listen in today as we talk about this month's theme of oceans and waters. And today we're going to focus in on urban waters and urban waterways, more important now than ever before. Now, cities share one key characteristic. They're all full of people, But as well, they're full of buildings and businesses because everyone shares the same relative space, air and water. Environmental impacts are concentrated then in smaller areas, including waterways. Urban waters and urban waterways are some of the most important elements of any city or any urban environment. Without these freshwater resources, we hope they're fresh, cities would be unable to sustain growth. And as the world's population continues to grow, urban areas are becoming increasingly crowded and polluted, making it more important than ever before to prioritize the protection of these natural resources. As well, urban waters and urban waterways are often overlooked when looking for ways to protect our precious environment. So why are these so important? Well, urban waters and waterways help to protect water quality by filtering pollutants and preventing those pollutants from entering larger waterways or perhaps even our drinking water sources. They preserve biodiversity because urban stream banks and wetlands provide a variety of habitats for species ranging all the way from insects and fish to birds and mammals. The very presence of rivers and natural streams within urban environment helps to manage flooding during some of our many extreme precipitation events by controlling the amount of water that flows into densely populated areas. In fact, well-managed riverside structures also help to contain sediments, which when left uncontrolled can cause rivers to rapidly erode their banks or to overflow into adjacent lands. Now, that's probably okay for farm and ag lands, but not necessarily for urban areas. Urban waters and waterways uh, can also improve public health and safety. The presence of aquatic wildlife within a city's perimeter further encourages our citizens to engage with nature on a very intimate level, thereby improving our physical well-being as well as mental well-being for residents who might otherwise lack access to some of the natural spaces that they can encounter in the more rural environments. 
Urban waters and waterways greatly improve the aesthetics and significantly increase economic value and activity in any given area. They can serve as scenic backdrops that attract tourists or draw attention to businesses that offer waterfront views or activities such as fishing or boating. And beyond simply being aesthetically pleasing to look at, urban waters can be incredibly calming spaces that bring, again, peace to city dwellers amidst all the hustle and bustle of the concrete jungles and of our everyday lives. So why should we care about urban waters and waterways? Well, water quality touches all of us every day. Do the water we drink from the tap, our showers, and the water we swim in, and the water that we use to water our plants and, and crops. Our local water utilities serve a key role in treating wastewater and drinking water, but also ensuring access to clean waters and the land surrounding them starts with each and every one of us. Urban areas have the potential to pollute water in many, many ways. You've got runoff from streets that carries the oil from our cars, it carries rubber from our tires, heavy metals, and other contaminants from automobiles. Untreated or poorly treated sewage can be low in dissolved oxygen and high in pollutants such as fecal bacteria, nitrates, phosphorus, chemicals, and, and many other bacteria. Treated sewage can still be high in some of these. Groundwater and surface water can be contaminated from many sources such as garbage dumps, toxic waste and chemical storage, and leaking fuel storage tanks, as well as intentional dumping of hazardous substances. Air pollution can also lead to acid rain, nitrate deposits, and ammonium deposits, which can alter the water chemistry of our lakes and streams in some cases. Recognized problems associated with conventional urban water infrastructure are many, many, and they're all around us, and we're going to talk a lot about these today. As well, urban settlements, a.k.a. cities, are subject to a continuum of changes that are driven by the demographic, economic, political, environment, cultural, and social factors. And citizens are concerned about their water security. Are we going to have enough of it? They're concerned about flooding and the health of waterways, as well as the affordability of services, climate change, and the environment. The future livability of our cities is being challenged by population growth as well as changing climate that impacts on the environment that sustains us. And waterways and water management in the urban setting is critical to this as well. Now, this is a lot. But here today to help us explore and unpack and, and hopefully understand this some more are Sean Fisher and Dick Luthy. Now, Sean is with the U.S. Geological Survey, and he is a hydrologist with the USGS. And Sean has been with the USGS since 2002. He is involved in collecting and interpreting groundwater and surface water quality data. He's based in Long Island, New York, and he's worked on studies involving contaminants of emerging concern in public supply wells, urban studies in wastewater contamination, groundwater transport in nearshore waters, as well as assessing sediment and water for insecticide contamination in untargeted wetlands. He's also looked at studying microplastics impact on our urban waters and in evaluating real-time water quality data. Welcome, Sean. And did I get all of that right? Yes. Thank you. 
Thank you. Our other guest is Dick Muthi. Dick is the Silas H. Palmer Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Stanford University in California, and he directed the National Science Foundation Engineering Research Center for Reinventing the Nation's Urban Water Infrastructure, the purpose of which was to achieve more sustainable solutions to urban water challenges. Dick's area of teaching and research is environmental engineering and water quality with applications to water reuse, stormwater use, and systems-level analysis of our urban water challenges. Dick is also past chair of the National Research Council's Water Science and Technology Board, and he is a member of the National Academy of Engineering and a fellow of the Water Environment Federation. Welcome, Dick. Did I get all of that right? Yes, Bernice, you did. Thank you. And again, thank both of you all so much for making time in your busy schedules to join us today. I want to start out with with Sean. Sean, if you could just very briefly tell us more about the U.S. Geological Survey and what you all do. It's it's an often unseen, perhaps an unthought of and, and unrecognized organization. So tell us more about that. Sure, thanks. Yeah, the U.S. Geological Survey is a federal organization, as you noted. It's a bureau under the Department of the Interior. Our mission is to provide unbiased and high-quality science, scientific data on Earth systems, natural hazards such as earthquakes and volcanoes. Those, those are typically what are most uh, relatable to the public when they hear USGS. But we also work a lot with water resources, ecological systems, um, topographic maps, geologic maps, natural resources and, such as energies and minerals. We're all under the purview of the USGS. Um, we support decision makers to enhance and protect quality of life. And the USGS is actually one of 15 federal agencies and bureaus under the Urban Waters Federal Partnership, which is a White House initiative that began back in 2011 and is currently administrated by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA. My current position in the New York Water Science Center is as a hydrologist and supporting both local and national um, level projects. What are some ways, for example, that you support or that your data supports or feeds into um, local and then federal levels? Sure. So we have a a whole range of projects that we work on the local with municipalities and and the cities, such as New York City, um, as well as nationwide projects that are run out of our mission areas, such as the Water Resource Mission Area. And the data that we collect locally can support both. It can support local needs such as water level elevations or water quality within the groundwater systems. But those data also then go on to be used in larger analysis with data from throughout the country by colleagues all over in every state in the, in the nation. What are some ways, just, and we just have about a minute or so to go, uh, some ways that people might recognize that it's, your data is used or your data encourages other activities? Sure. So for example, during flooding events, NOAA and the USGS data are regularly used to determine the extent of water level throughout urban and rural areas and help to be used for um, early flood warnings. And groundwater resources throughout the nation are also used by water purveyors and decision makers to better understand the water quality and quantity 
of the resource. Indeed. We're going to go to break now, but right after we, when we return, I do want to just talk just another minute about what you just said in terms of how the data is used. Again, I want people to understand that. So we want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, The Green Healthy and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all central markets, HEBs, natural grocers, sunflower shops, as well as many, many other locations across the Metroplex. As well, available free for download online at nadallas.com. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at nhg.com. Our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lynndentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, to today's show on oceans and waters, focusing in on urban waters and urban waterways. And we are back with Sean Fisher with the U.S. Geological Survey and Dick Luthie with Stanford University. Now, before the break, Sean was telling us more about what the U.S. Geological Survey does. You mentioned that localities can use your data in terms of, I guess, determining flood assessment. So is this where they can tell that certain areas of a, of a city are going to flood and prepare people or, or what? Well, the USGS has stream gauges all over the country, um, both federally funded and cooperative funded. And the data provide continuous record of water level and the amount of water that passes by called discharge. And during storm events, the water level is tracked continuously and is presented to the public in near real time. So depending on where the gauges are situated and whether folks within the USGS and other agencies have worked to develop models for understanding the flooding conditions in the area, particularly in urban areas where they can be flashy, then local decision makers can determine based on how quickly a storm is passing and how much the water level is rising within the stream to determine whether bridges are at risk, um, they need to evacuate an area, um, a low-lying area, or a place where it's particularly uh, vulnerable to floodwaters. Thank you for that explanation. I just wanted to, to get that out there because, again, you guys are just this hidden little agency that's very, very valuable and that impacts and affects all of our lives every day. But if you see the USGS, you are, what is that? So thank you well, for hopefully that. Hopefully your listeners will see our um, logo more often now <laughs> on stream gauges, at least to the waterways. Great. Thank you. Thank you. And, Sean, would you also, Sean, define and describe what we're talking about when referring to urban waters and waterways and what is most people's usual point of contact? And I realize that's different for a lot of people, but what, how do you all define urban, urban waters and, and waterways? Sure. Yeah. I mean, urban areas differ greatly across the country, right? And mm-hmm. the real reason for urban areas even exist is because of 
the waterways themselves, typically um, whether they're inland and they're adjacent to rivers or on the coast and they're in an estuarine area. Really, cities have evolved around these waterways because of transportation, access to drinking water, et cetera. And so um, as time goes on and these cities develop, they tend to restrict the waterways or change or divert the, the flow paths, bury them in some cases. Um, they send them underground. In some, we have instances all over the country where streams are sent underground, either pushed into the storm sewer system or diverted to the point where they're dissipated. And, and in that case, there's, there's a loss of that habitat. The urban areas that people are used to now, more developed, shorelines of the streams or waterways are hardened. They're either bulkheaded or uh, riprap, and they tend to not be that accessible to many folks, particularly in um, lower-income areas where the community is cut off by transportation and utility conduits. So without, without a real focused effort on bringing people to the, to the waterway and working with our other federal agencies through the Urban Water Federal Partnership to provide data necessary to figure out ways to get those folks there, a lot of times access to waterways is limited to seeing it out a window or, you know, passing over a bridge. And Dick, but in some cases, waterways can be, urban waterways can be these highly sought after magnificent places, but in some events and places and circumstances, they can also be a hazard or a risk. Uh, can you talk to us about that a little bit? Yeah, I'd be happy to. But but first, I'd like to take us back <laughs> a few decades, if you don't mind, uh, back to uh, 1972. Uh, that's when the Clean Water Act was passed. And I think if you look at environmental legislation, this is universally acknowledged as just a um, wonderful um, act that set water discharge standards for cities and industry all across the U.S. Everyone had to upgrade their um, wastewater treatment systems so that pollution, gross pollution of our rivers and streams would uh, stop. And that's, uh, that's just been a huge success. So today then, we, 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 we don't have the very serious problems that we did in the past. Of uh, there, There's some classic pictures of oil spills on rivers and the Cuyahoga River. You may remember actually caught on fire once, of all things. And, but just to pick up on something that Sean said, um, our, our cities, though, grew up around waterways, and in many places then that meant that uh, railroad tracks, highways, uh, warehouses and stuff were built next to the rivers. And that sort of cut off the enjoyment of that waterscape by most people in the city. Later, with uh, sort of redevelopment in our cities, we've gone back to, to reclaim that and celebrate it. For uh, Bernice, you probably know the uh, river walk down in San Antonio, you know. It brings a lot of people, or you move the waterfront area in San Francisco and lots of different places. So these urban amenities provide enjoyment. As you mentioned earlier, it has a calming effect on people. They're drawn to it. Also, it serves as ways to um, help protect our ecosystems, too, in the sense that we're, we're not polluting and we're putting water back in the environment that can uh, serve ecosystem services and, and such. So... We, we've come a long way, and I think everyone has a natural affinity for water and enjoys that opportunity to go and visit. Indeed. And, Dick, so what, do you, what can we tell people, explain to people, what urban waters and urban waterways can do for our health? Well, something that might not be so obvious is that 
in many places in the country, uh, when you drink water, you're drinking water that came from some other city's discharge. And we could use the example of uh, Pittsburgh, Wheeling, Cincinnati, a whole series of cities along the, the Ohio River Valley and on in the Mississippi or on the Colorado, for example. So when we think about our urban waters and protecting them, we're actually protecting water supplies for, for other people as well. So that's something that's very important. I think the other one is that just this ability to recreate, to experience nature, and to enjoy gathering spots that celebrate the environment. There's something emotional about it <laughs> that, that attracts people, and, and, and we all come away feeling better for the experience. You know, it's much like when you go to a park. Why do people go to a park? Well, why do they go to an urban waterway, one that's, um, that has sort of an esplanade and jogging paths and that kind of stuff. People really enjoy that. Indeed. And you mentioned something uh, there that I want to dig into a little bit more. And and that is, you mentioned that people in some areas may be drinking water or sewage or whatever that came from another area. Uh, And you mentioned the Colorado, which is what we deal with here in Texas. And then when I lived in Florida, we had the St. John's that passed through every everything. Talk about those impacts, because I know we talked about what urban waters and waterways do for our health, the good things, but there's another side to that, too, that did in the past happen and perhaps can happen now. So let's talk a little bit about that. We've got about three minutes before we have to go to break again. Well, sure. Uh, Well, you're in Dallas, and for some reason, you people in Dallas, Fort Worth, call yourself the Metroplex. Yes. Uh, And... and, (laughs) And your water um, flows um, south out of the city, and it eventually ends up at Houston and becomes part of Houston's water supply. So it goes to Lake Livingston down there. So, so that's that's one graphic example. But another thing along the way in Texas, there, um, your water is diverted to the um, Tarrant uh, Regional Wetlands down there, right. and that water is recycled back to the city. So that's an, that's an, an example of where. Natural systems and wetlands have a purifying effect on the water, and you can use it again as, it, as, as it's done down there in uh, uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So we, we look at, uh, at the way that natural systems can improve our water quality, and, you know, there, it doesn't have to be those gigantic systems like St. John's and whatnot, but smaller systems in the ur- urban environment where you have uh, bioswales and uh, bioinfiltration systems that collect the urban runoff and then filter it prior to uh, discharge or prior to percolation in the ground. And that helps green the urban landscape and helps cleanse the water too. And I have to think, though, that because of this interconnectedness of our urban waters and waterways, that they really have to be taken care of because something uh, not good could happen upstream here with our, our water in Dallas and it could take that same stuff downstream to Houston. Yeah, that's right. And so we need to uh, be vigilant. Fortunately for most industries, uh, and I guess for, as you could say, for cities as well, there, there are systems in place that have some redundancy to protect the water. But every now and then, there's an accident, like we had in East Palestine in Ohio. And then, you know, you say, oh, now I have a, a pollution problem. I have to address that very quickly. But fortunately... Those aren't very common. Indeed. But I imagine that that didn't 
stay just in that those urban waters. And so I imagine they had to really get on it quickly so that it wouldn't flow to interconnected waterways. Yes, that's right. You're, you're exactly right. Um, but I would say on the whole, and I think Sean would agree that You know, we've done a good job of protecting our waterways, and we have a lot to be proud of. Indeed. We're going to go to break now, and when we come back, we want to talk about what some of the most persistent problems are. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. Today's show on oceans and waters, focusing in on urban waters and urban waterways. And we are back with Sean Fisher with the U.S. Geological Survey and Dick Luthi with Stanford University. And again, thank you all for being with us. I want to go back to Dick now and, and, and talk about or help us understand what are the most persistent problems with our urban waters and waterways today. And looking at those problems, is it, or should I say, what is the global impact, the impact in the U.S., and then I know that there are regional issues? Yes, thank you. I, I think that uh, one, one persistent problem is what we call non-point sources. Uh, that's sort of a technical term, but it means the water that gets into uh, rivers and streams, not from a conduit like a pipe, but just from runoff on the land. So the Clean Water Act that I mentioned earlier addressed problems with uh, water discharged in a pipe. We don't have those problems anymore, but runoff from the land can carry fertilizers and pesticides. The fertilizers can result in algae blooms. We see that periodically, by the way, in Lake Erie and Toledo and that area. So that's probably one, one persistent problem. Another one is in the east, you have combined sewers. That's where stormwater and sewage are in the same pipe. Out here in the west, stormwater and wastewater and separate pipes. But where you put stormwater in the same pipe with sewage, when, with, the, with the heavy storm, you tend to get too big a flow that um, the wastewater treatment plant just can't accommodate. And so you have to bypass that and you get a discharge into rivers and streams. So the combined sewer overflow, the non-point sources, I think those are the main ones. Here in the West, by the way, what we are focusing on more and more, and all, all the more so, given the heavy rains we've had this year, is how to capture that stormwater runoff to make it be part of our water supply. We've managed stormwater for flood control. You know, the classic examples are concrete channels and stuff like that. But we see that we need to do a better job of capturing these high flows, treating them, and putting that water in the ground so it becomes part of our future water supply. And that'll help us get through uh, droughts. Now, I remember a, a couple of years ago when th- there was a really bad flood uh, in Houston, and I've heard it, a similar situation in other places where I guess, I don't know, if the flooding gets so much or the water level gets so high, then something happens with the sewer system. And that, was that what you were talking about or what happens there? Well, I was, I was talking a little bit more like where you have... Uh, Sewers that carry stormwater and wastewater, and in a heavy storm, uh, the wastewater treatment plant just can't accommodate that flow. So you have to bypass it. So that, that has problems with pathogens, bacteria and viruses. The bigger problem with Houston, and something Sean can speak to, is the fact that you had a waterway that was intended for use as a floodplain. It got developed with homes, and when you had a hurricane come in and heavy rains, 
uh, that area flooded. But Sean probably knows more about that. Right. And I guess that the other situation I remember, too, was uh, in the Mississippi Delta area when, when that totally flooded. And that leads us, which we will talk about shortly, the climate change. Uh, but, but, Sean, if you can comment on that, too, when the when these urban waterways, which are these beautiful, natural places that we want to go and help our mental health, then they can also turn towards some risk and, and health impacts. Yeah, definitely. The The development of a natural waterway will always come with uh, risks. You know, you're changing flow dynamics, the um, hardening of the shore or, or the of the stream bed will cause uh, changes in flow and discharge. As Dick mentioned, the, the flooding of a, of a plane that was developed because it wasn't necessarily meant to act as the conduit during these larger events. Um, they're engineered for a particular flood risk, whether it's a 100-year or 500-year storm. And typically when we work with our partners to um, gauge streams, we can develop those types of ratings for streams by measuring throughout the um, hydrograph. And in areas like New York City, for example, where the water had been pumped from the ground on the western part of Long Island for a number of years up into the 30s, they drew down the water supply the water table so low that they ended up bringing in salt water from the estuary. So they had to divert their supply and that's why they had to build a reservoir and aqueduct system in the Catskills and upstate New York as of now. And then when the drought occurred in the sixties, the water table lowered again and the, uh, and homes were built in an area where that typically experienced groundwater flooding in Queens. So when water, water table rebounded, you ended up with flooding basements and flooding infrastructure such as the subway tunnels. So um, in some cities they have to run, they have to run pumps and they have to run other, they have to use other ways of diverting underground water, whether it's groundwater or streams that were forced underground during development to protect the infrastructure. Why was that so, done? Did they, did they not have information during the, back during those times about so where they were I wasn't building? Around back then. <laughs> I wasn't around to understand why they did it, but I can say that in hindsight, looking at the hydro, uh, hydrological hydrologic record for um, for both groundwater levels and, and the storm events and stream gauges that we've had going on for over 100 years, data were available, but the way in which it was communicated perhaps wasn't it didn't get to the right people. Yeah, I think that from what I know now, because I used to be in the development industry, you have to, it, when you get ready to build anything and you're going before uh, for your, your permits or for your entitlements, the, 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 the area's code department, you have to deal with the 100-year floodplain, which seems to be getting obsolete in and of itself. So we, we do see people looking at that now. And just economically to the people who did build in those circumstances, it's costing them a whole lot of money right now to avoid or to deal with them building in a place uh, that should not have been built. Let me ask you, though, something, too. I want to go back to Dick. And both of you all have mentioned what seems to me that people bury waters or streams or force them underground or something. Talk to me about that. Why was that done and what are the repercussions of that? Well, Sean was talking about uh, overuse of groundwater, mm-hmm. and we have problems here in the West with the recurring drought, and it's gotten all the more severe, it seems, with climate change. And in California and other places, whenever we got water short, we took water out of the ground 
over a long period of time, the net result is is the amount of water in the ground is diminished. It's not replaced. It's like taking money out of a savings account, and, and you're not putting any money back in. So there, there comes a time of reckoning then when uh, the consequences could be seawater intrusion in coastal areas so that the freshwater aquifers become salinated. Or another one that happens as well is when you pump so much water out of the ground, the ground really can't support its weight and it literally sinks. That's called subsidence. And that's another problem. And that affects all kinds of infrastructure from uh, water delivery systems like uh, canals and aqueducts, as well as pipes and things that are in the ground that, that are stressed in ways that they that they weren't designed. So you were talking about climate change, and I think the thing we see today uh, in the West certainly is that our climate, it just seems to be going through more extremes. We came off the three driest years in recorded history just last year. And that, I mean, recorded history, that goes back to the gold rush. And then now this year, well, I'm looking out my window, uh, we're getting twice as much the normal rain. So it just seems to be we're at one extreme or the other. We don't have an average anymore. Indeed, but for you in the West and, and uh, us here in Texas, too, we, we have drought issues. Is this going to help this, this, this high precipitation that you're having? How is it going to help? Are you able to capture that and do some things or, or what? Short answer is no. Oh. We're not very good at capturing. Sorry <laughs> to disappoint. We're not very good at capturing very high flows. We need to do a better job at that. And that would mean um, flooding of some farm fields or portions of farm fields in the Central Valley and designing more of our urban water infrastructure to take advantage of percolating water in the ground. Here, uh, Bernice, you, you can't use a rain barrel. A rain barrel just is too small to store a significant amount of water. The best rain barrel is the ground itself. So, th- so things are changing in that regard, and cities now look at uh, stormwater less as a uh, flood control problem more and more as a water supply opportunity. Indeed, and everything you've told us today makes us realize that, too. Sean, you have mentioned urban water cycle. Well, what is this, and how does it affect everyone, and why should people care about it? Sure. Go over the urban water cycle. I did want to mention one thing about in terms of um, covering or burying the streams. It was was really a throwback to when they were developing the cities, when the settlers first came in or when cities were first being developed. Particularly along the East Coast and in the Northeast, there were wetlands and and tributaries to the estuaries, and it was it was deemed that they could either dam them or fill them to make way for for more development. And so, some historic maps will will show a lot of small tributaries, even coming from the island of Manhattan mm-hmm. into the East River, the Harlem River, um, that are now just covered over. And that's what ended up resulting because the the water is still there, the groundwater is still feeding is there that was once feeding those um, small streams, but it's now it wants to go somewhere because the hydraulic pressure hasn't changed. Indeed, and we're going to go to break and we'll talk about the water cycle more. We'll be right back on the other side uh, of the break with Sean Fisher with the USGS and Dick Luthie with Stanford University. Thank you all.
We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, The Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Central Markets, HEB stores, natural grocers, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DYI classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at nhg.com. Our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, non-mercury, looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lynndentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio to today's show on oceans and waters, where we're focusing in on urban waters and urban waterways today. And we are back with Sean Fisher with the U.S. Geological Survey and Dick Luthi with Stanford University. And again, thank you all for being with us. Now, before the break, Sean, you were about to to tell us uh, about urban the urban water cycle what it is and how it affects everyone and why people should care about it sure and as most of your listeners are are aware of the water cycle where water evaporates up from the oceans and and water and forms clouds transfer you know transports across long distances and then rains down elsewhere and you know for the most part that's the urban water cycle except that as it as it rains you know, the water lands on a lot of impervious surfaces, whether it's the streets, the buildings, and it ends up running downhill, right? And there, if there isn't much in the way of soils and, and plants to absorb the water, um, as Dick had mentioned earlier, a lot of that water just gets funneled into the storm system, goes into the combined sewer system, then overflow, either overflows or gets treated at the treatment plant. An important part of that is that when it picks up a lot of those contaminants that you had mentioned early on in the first segment, it kind of brings that to the urban waterway too, right? And so um, in addition to trying to capture some of that to clean it at the treatment plants, um, cities will uh, have more and more been implementing green infrastructure and um, other best management practices for um, diverting and, and handling the storm waters. In terms of the contaminants getting into the waterways and affecting wildlife and, and human health, um, when there's points of public access, um, and as Dick mentioned, there's pathogens, bacteria, and such um, that have to be monitored by at any points of public access by uh, city health departments. Contaminants can lead to um, ecological health conditions, viruses and, and pathogens that affect wildlife, the fish. Um, it can lead to endocrine disruption. It can, uh, if contaminants bioaccumulate, they can work their way up the food chain. And, um, you know, all that affects the ecological health of the system. And when there's poor water quality and poor ecological health that affects the people that go to recreate or fish on these waters. And, and as Dick mentioned as well, the up, upstream effects of both urban and agricultural practices that result in downstream um, degradation of water uh, is it should be a concern for everyone because then it, it continues on and um, affects further downstream. 
And what is usually the first sign of some serious issues or pollutant pollution in urban waters? I, the insects, the fish, or, or, or what? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I think it varies depending on the type of contaminant, the source of the contamination. Okay. Um, if there's a if there's a discharge from an, uh, a combined sewer system at a CSO at a combined sewer out, overflow outfall, um, it could be you could see suds from um, laundry detergents and other um, and other things. You could see raw sewage traveling mm-hmm. down the stream. You could see oils from the runoff from the streets. We have monitoring locations all over the country that look at um, continuous water quality parameters as well, including turbidity, temperature, pH, um, and dissolved oxygen. And dissolved oxygen, there have been a number of cases where our senses have picked up a drop in dissolved oxygen um, that have been related to events that then also can be correlated with observed fish die-off. What is dissolved oxygen? Sure, dissolved oxygen is essentially the amount of oxygen that's dissolved in the water. And that's what the fish use to breathe. And just like we breathe the air, mm-hmm. they breathe oxygen in, in the water. And we can measure that um, with in-place sensors and tissue sensors, uh, along with other um, constituents to better understand the um, basic water quality of the of the waterway that we're observing. So if there's not dissolved oxygen or enough of it, you're going to, fish are not going to live. Is that correct? That's correct. And states and the EPA have, um, they have criteria in place um, for waterways, urban or just waterways mm-hmm. in general, and each state has slightly different criteria. But basically, um, oxygen is measured, it can be measured in uh, an amount of milligrams per liter. And when level concentrations of oxygen drop below generally four or three milligrams per liter of oxygen, it's really a, a stress on um, the fish that, that use oxygen. And they, if they can't flee the area, they, they could die. Okay. Now, Dick, back to you. And, and we didn't talk about this, but is a lake considered a natural lake or a man lake? Is that considered part of the urban, an urban waterway or just where does that fit in? Well, I, I think it definitely does. Uh, you know, there are, there are urban lakes like uh, uh, Lake Union in uh, Seattle, for example. Then there are larger bodies of water. Well, the Great Lakes are a very common example that are, we, we, we think of as part of our urban water in the sense that cities are located either right around the lakes or, or along the uh, lakeshore. We have um, done a lot in terms of uh, protecting these um, urban water bodies. The problem right now probably is a little bit more about the amount of water that's available in places that are water short to protect ecosystems. Here in California, and I think probably the same is true in Texas, is that a lot of water goes to irrigation, to farms. Next chunk of water goes to cities. And when you have plenty of water, there's enough to go around, including water for fish. But in California, what happens when things get tight um, the flows in our streams go down, like in the San Joaquin River, for example, and the ecosystems end up on the short end of the stick. So what we have to do in the future is to realize that we need to reserve more of our fresh water, particularly in times when things get scarce, for ecosystems. And that, that will put more stress on our own water supplies, and that means we have to do a better job at water reuse, a better job at stormwater capture, and where we can to do desalination, like brackish water, to become part of our water supply. Now, 
really quickly, Dick, we, we talked a little bit about it and the risk of urban waters and waterways on, on human health. Uh, but are there any examples that you can point to that, that, that will help people understand the, the impact of urban waters and waterways on human health? Maybe there's been some incident or issues in the past that people may well, I, have heard about. Well, I, I think the most common one, at least where I live, and in Southern California, it would be a beach closure. And and the reason beaches get closed is not because of a chemical contaminant. It's because of bacteria and viruses, uh, pathogens. So this is the thing that most people might see because uh, the effects on human health are immediate and they may happen periodically. And they happen also because of uh, combined sewer overflows. That's probably where most people would see um, an effect of water pollution. Yeah, and I think we've had some of those here in, in, in Texas, too, with some of our lakes and our small, small waterways. And, and again, and I think, you know, people see it here and there, but you're basically saying it's, it's mainly due to bacteria and viruses. That's right. It's a public health issue. Uh, there are issues, of course, with contaminants, uh, chemical contaminants. But in many ways, we've, we've been able to address those, those challenges. It's the ones that are a little more immediate in terms of public health, and that would be uh, bacteria and pathogens. We need to always be vigilant there. Indeed. And that's why we have have water treatment plants and wastewater treatment plants and such. And, and Sean, you want to weigh in on that, and also if you could also weigh in on acid rain and where that fits into the picture. Sure, yeah. I just want to elaborate on on Dick's point, too. Mm -hmm. And um, a growing concern, too, now has been um, harmful algal blooms and freshwater cyanobacterial harmful algal blooms. And it's really been um, it's been creeping up in the in the in the realm of things we should be concerned about, really, because there are toxins that can be associated with some of these blooms, and the cause of them is not fully understood. Uh, we have a number of studies going on within the USGS as well as universities and agencies all over the world trying to better understand why algal blooms are occurring and why the toxins are are forming, and particularly in, in um, freshwater rivers, and, and for example, in Kansas, and where the whole stream can turn green, and then there's uh, public health access issues, um, and particularly when folks don't recognize it. Um, and then there, along around Long Island here, we have a number of different uh, marine hab species that um, can cause illness as, and um, shellfish death. Yeah, and I am hearing a lot more um, about the harmful algal blooms too. So like you said, they really are rising to the surface. We only have a couple of minutes to go. Um, And so I want to go back to you, Dick, one last time. And how is climate change impacting our urban waters and waterways? We've talked about that a little bit, but talk about that uh, just a minute. And then what steps can be taken to reduce health and environmental pollution in our urban waters? Thank you. Uh, I, I think the issue is that climate change is affecting things differently across the country. Roughly speaking, uh, Midwest, Northeast, uh, you know, they're going to be wet and humid. That's probably not going to change so much. But out here in uh, in California, in the Southwest, Texas, we're going to see more extremes in our, in our weather and our climate is going to get drier in the long term, punctuated by some very intense wet spells. So that's that's a challenge for us. How, how, how do we deal with that? In California, we typically look to the snow in the Sierra Nevada uh, mountains as water in the bank, but climate change will change that. And 
where we'll get more rain instead of snow. Indeed. So it seems like we need to learn how to capture that when that, 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 that heavy precipitation comes, knowing with certainty that we're going to need it later on. Uh, last word, and you've only got 30 seconds for it, uh, <laughs> uh, Sean, and that is what's probably the most important thing we can do in ordinary people in their everyday lives to help reduce health and environmental pollution in our urban waters? Well, I, what I can say is that with a better understanding of what's going on in the environment and how well and continued monitoring and diligence to understanding the data that come out of the studies that look at the environmental impact of urban areas and how we can better continue connecting the people within these cities, particularly in low-income areas, to their waterways, um, everyone will have a better sense and a better feeling of importance for the for those urban waterways. Indeed. Thank you. We've been with Sean Fisher with the U.S. Geological Survey and Dick Luthie with Stanford University, and they have made us smarter today. And thank you, listeners, for listening in today to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for it to continue in your home, in your social circles, in your workplaces, at the water cooler, and in the grocery checkout line, so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Our culture is a result of a trillion tiny acts taken by billions of people every day, like yourselves. But each of those tiny acts can seem insignificant, but all of them add up, one way or the other, to the change that we each live through. This is your host, Bernice Butler. Thank you for listening today, and join us again next week for more on Oceans and Waters, and listen to any of our past shows on podcasts wherever you get yours. Thank you. Thank you.